So I'm going to start with a recap of the previous sermon, because it was a while ago now, it was probably about a month ago. So Psalm 73 begins with a theme in verse 1 that was well known in Israel and commonly believed to be how the world works. It says, surely God is good to Israel, to those that are pure in heart. But what Asaph sees around him in this psalm is that everyone who lives a godless life is doing very well, thank you very much. They're prosperous, healthy, their bodies sleek and fat. They experience no trouble. Verse 7 says, their eyes bulge with abundance. They have more than heart could wish. And verse 9, they set themselves against heaven and say, what does God know about anything? So those who are pure in heart, and he's thinking about himself primarily here, they're struggling and finding life difficult, and he just can't understand why God is allowing the wicked to prosper. And he can make no sense of what God's doing in his own life, because his own life is not going well. Verse 13 indicates that he's struggling with some sort of illness or some sort of crisis. And he gets to the point where he says in verse 13, surely I've cleansed my heart in vain. There just doesn't seem to be a point in being a godly person. So he gets to a very low point. He says, going back to verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled, my steps had nearly slipped. So Asaph is struggling with this internal crisis so much and what he sees going on in the world going unpunished that he nearly walks away from his faith. He's, he's really struggling. But the turning point came when he stops himself walking away because he knows he would have damaged others' faith. He would have betrayed the children of Israel, he says. And he went into the sanctuary of God to worship. And he then saw the true end of the wicked. He saw that although they're prosperous now, they're blind to the reality that actually being wealthy is, in some cases, is being on a slippery slope to destruction. There's nothing wrong with being wealthy at all, but it is like treading on thin ice for people, even for Christians and they can put their trust in it rather, in, rather than in God. But those who don't know God, the reality is they'll be swept away in a moment, swept away by terrors. And also, in the sanctuary of God, he sees the truth of God, the promises, the provision and power and presence of God. He gets his life straightened out and reoriented, re-centered on God. And when our eyes are on the world and not on God, then our thinking becomes twisted and we lose all spiritual perspective. We're, we're blinded to the reality that God's in control, even though it doesn't seem like it, he is. But then as we come under the truth of God, then we get our thinking straightened out and we receive the strength and resources of, that God gives us to live the life in the, in, that we need to live to glorify God. It's not man-centered, but we're give, given the strength and resources to live a life for God by his strength. But this is not the end of the story. Him getting his life sorted out 
and his perspective changed isn't the end. There's a response that's needed from Asaph. He can't just leave it there. And this is where we take up the part two from verse 21 onwards. The big idea really is that confession is evidence of a changed life with God at its center. Confession is evidence of a changed life with God at its center. So our first point is our need to confess. Without confession of sin, there's no evidence of a changed life. In verses 21 to 22, it says, When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. So he's entered the sanctuary of God. He's encountered the truth of God and the presence of God. He's had his thinking straightened out. But Asaph has complained to God and he's built up a resentful attitude towards God. He can't carry on as though nothing had happened. It has to be dealt with. There has to be an acknowledgement of sin and having a wrong attitude. And this is a problem common to every one of us. You know, we're not all, none of us here, I imagine, are axe murderers and... We're not like Matt Hancock, who's been in the news recently, the former Secretary of State for Health, who's had to resign because it came to light. He had a mistress, and he was breaking social distancing guidelines by uh, kissing her in his office. Um, There's not many of us here like that. You know, but often we come into church, and people stand at the front and preach as though butter wouldn't melt in our mouths. But, you know, there could be things going on in our lives that people don't see. It's the attitudes and the heart, the things that nobody sees, that often aren't right. Culture today says that the heart is essentially good. You know, follow your heart. Follow your dreams. Listen to your heart. But that's not at all biblical. Jeremiah 17 says... The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. You know, the heart is not a reliable indicator of what's right. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes our heart, informed by our conscience and by God's word, um, is a good thing because, you know, it's a source of our passion towards God and towards others. You know, out of our hearts, we can help other people. But if we leave God out of it and rely just on the heart then it can deceive us um, because it has its own desires. The the sinful nature desires the flesh. So the heart's not a reliable indicator of what's right because it ignores the Christian doctrine of sin. Too many times following your heart leads to pride or greed or self-justification. You know, these are the heart sins. These are the things that offend God. Uh, You know, more than, you know, some of the outward sins, really, they're not as serious as a a heart that is full of pride or a heart that is self-justifying, you know, that thinks they're better than God. It's an awful thing, self-justification. Matthew 15 has a devastating verdict on the heart. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. 
For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false, sorry, false witness, slander. Why would you follow your heart? You, you wouldn't, the natural person, without the light of God in them, following their heart. It, it's all going to come and end in tears, murder, adultery. But mur murder, as we know from the Bible, is not just killing somebody, it's hating somebody, having a resentful attitude against them. Um, adultery is not just the physical act of doing it. Jesus says, you know, desiring somebody who's not yours is adultery. Slander. All these things come from the heart. Well, Asaph's problem was that he was bitter. He was frustrated over the prosperity of the wicked. Why God had allowed it. And over his own problems. Either his health problem or his home crisis or whatever it was. But he's frustrated. He's bitter. He's resentful. And it's towards God as well. So this attitude cannot go unchecked. He's come into the sanctuary and he's realized the true perspective of that the, the wicked won't prosper. Their end is on a slippery slope to destruction. But inside he's got this heart attitude that he's dealing with. Verse 21 says, when my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, or the New King James, I was vexed in my mind. You know, when we go through hard times, then we're vulnerable to this sort of sin. Or when, we, when we're desperately tired, you know, we're, we're um, short with our husband or our wife or our friends, short-tempered. Um, and if you're going through really difficult times, people can just give up, you know, and think, well, I'm going to do this immoral thing because I just don't care anymore. People come to the end of their rope when they're going through hard times. And they're not caring what God thinks or about doing the right thing. You know, people can, you know, you revert to the natural man, no longer, you know, speaking or thinking like a spiritual person, but like one who's carnal. And Asaph's thinking had degenerated that he thought instinctively. Listen to how he describes himself in verse 22 I was brutish. And ignorant, I was like a beast towards you. He'd allowed his heart to rule his head, and he was thinking like an unbeliever. You know, it's like every godly practice that he'd developed as a mature Christian. And he was, because he was a leader of Israel. He led the worship in the temple. He led the worship in the procession when the ark was brought into Jerusalem. You know, all this maturity, it just went out the window in his frustration at the um, prosperity of the wicked. He allowed his heart to rule his head. He was acting on impulse. He was not acting on uh, God informing his conscience and behavior. And this behavior and attitude can't be continued. You can't keep acting on impulse and carnally because God said that we shouldn't continue in sin. That's Romans 5, the end of Romans 5. Just because God's gracious to us and forgives our sin doesn't mean to say we can continue in it forever. There'll be an accounting to be had. And this is what he was doing. He was like a beast towards God. He needed to confess. You know, the key truth is that without confession of sin, there's no change of life. 
We need to honestly examine ourselves before God. John says in 1 John chapter 1, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins though, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no sin that's too bad or too big or has been going on so long that God can't forgive it. No sin. He's faithful and just and forgives our sins. But if you say you have no sin and you don't have a problem with God, you're deceiving yourself. You're lying to yourself. We are to examine our hearts to see whether our faith is genuine. We're to test ourselves. That's in 2 Corinthians 13. You know, confession is a healthy part of the Christian life. It's an essential part of the Christian life. And it's only this honesty before God that produces a changed life. You can't blag God. You can't pretend to be righteous because God sees the heart. He sees everything. You can't fool God or cover it up. He knows everything. Uh, the commentator, quoting Socrates, says, The unexamined life is not worth living. The unexamined life is not worth living. And it's, it's not. Confession is where we come into the presence of God and we let the truth of God penetrate our hearts and our minds like Asaph did in the temple. He wasn't just learning about the provision of God and being reminded of his promises. He was allowing God to deal with his heart. You know, as you come under the truth and light of God, by his Holy Spirit, he shines a spotlight in your heart and he tells you by his Spirit what you're doing wrong. You know, you know as you read certain verses, um, you know that you haven't been doing those things. You know you haven't been loving God with all your heart. And you know you haven't been loving your neighbor. Uh, you haven't been helping those around you. Or you know you've been having foul thoughts or wrong thoughts. You know it. And God, as we come into his presence and look at his truth and it, verses in the Bible, he shines a spotlight on our hearts. And his Holy Spirit tells us and deals with us. It's part of being a Christian that God is active in our lives because we want he wants us to be more like him that sanctification god making us more like him and us cooperating with his holy spirit as he raises things up in our lives and we repent of them and deal with them and grow closer to him as a result so with heartfelt passion we say we're sorry for our sin and we ask god to forgive us you know as we learned last week in the sermons the last couple of weeks God and Jesus endured terrible punishment on the cross. And the worst of it was his separation from his father. I can't imagine what being separated from any form of good would be like. The utter blackness of it. But this is what Jesus did for us. He bore our punishment on the sin so that we could be forgiven. So we're to confess our sin and deal with it and allow him to through his Holy Spirit to bring them to mind so we can repent of them. Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. 
By his wounds you have been healed. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree, not that we can do what we like, but that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. We're to ask God to help us to repent of our sin permanently. This is why going to the sanctuary to encounter God was a turning point for Asaph. It straightened out his perspective and led him to see his own failing, his own attitude that was rebelling against God. And he, he, and he repented. He, re, he responded by repenting. Remember, without confession of sin, there's no change of life. Confession is part of a normal, healthy Christian life. And secondly, a right perspective was restored, verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you'll receive me to glory. Whom I have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You know, we all have sin that affects every part of us. And Asaph's sin was bitterness, and we have bad attitudes. But you know, those those things prevent us from seeing the glory of God. They like block it within us, these bad heart attitudes. Um, they block us from experiencing and enjoying the glory of God and the presence of God and prevent us from living fruitful lives and instead lead to wasted lives. In Asaph's case, it nearly led to him giving up and he would have caused all those around him to stumble had he given up. There's a well-known saying that in our Christian lives we should be pro progressing against sin, not let it be progressing against us. So in addition to this, God changed Asaph by changing his perspective from self-centered to God-centered. He changed his perspective from being, woe is me, life is bad and unfair, to being God-centered. And you know, and by the way, I have to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones at least once today. And he said that self is our most constant enemy. It's the most prolific cause of unhappiness. It's a result of the fall of Adam, he says. People have become self-centered and thin-skinned. Everybody in our culture today is offended by something and protest about it and jump on it. And that's a part of the fall of Adam, this being thin-skinned and self-centered. Um, posting our profiles all over the internet. Well, I do a bit of it, but really it's about saying, look at me. It is quite self-centered. And you want affirmation from people to say, oh, don't you look nice? And wasn't that a great trip out you had? But God prompts Asaph to come into the sanctuary where he's turned from I to you, from himself to God. He said, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Then a bit later, but you guide me with your counsel. Whom have I in heaven but you? His confession liberated him to the glorious freedom of a God-centered life. God changed him from self-centered to God-centered and he's able to see these wonderful truths in verses 23 to 26. Nevertheless, I am continually with me, 
with you, verse 23, you hold my right hand. It seems a strange verse at first, and it seems almost to be man-centered, because Asaph is saying, I am continually with you, and you'd expect him to be saying, God is continually with me. He'll never leave me nor forsake me. But he's in this saying, I am continually with you, he's not being man-centered, he's attributing it to God. He's always with God because God is continually holding his right hand. And I love that picture, like a father with his child just leading him along the road where he never lets go. You know, a father who's got a strong grip on his child and is not going to let him run into the road and not going to leave them. And where, when a bear comes along to eat his children up, then he's not going to let go of that hand and he's going to protect them and lift them up or carry them. And this is what God is like with us. He protects us always, continually. And in fact, even though fathers are really great, they're not perfect. But God alone is. He will never let you go. Never let your hand go. This is so God-centered. Hebrews 13 quotes Deuteronomy and Joshua. I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can say, the Lord is my helper. What can man do to me? Nothing. Holding our hand is such a beautiful picture of dependence on God and security. And then verse 24 to 25. You guide me with your counsel and afterwards you will receive me into glory. You know, there's never a point where God is not with us. Guiding us. His help is always available to us. His counsel always there. The Holy Spirit is the counsellor and the comforter. And he's promised that to all believers. We belong to him. We're his children. There's nothing that's going to happen to us. We're eternally safe. It's wonderful. And in the Christian circles, there's, and in Christian bookshops, you can often see a little um, note card on footsteps. And you've all seen it, I'm sure, where there's two tracks walking through the sand. And then it's... One stops and it becomes one track, and then two tracks again. And the person's supposed to think that when it's one track, God might have left the person, but then it, the footsteps thing goes on to say, no, but that's when God was carrying you. And, you know, it's quite nice. It, it's a picture of the fact that God helps us and carries us through difficult times. But that's an in inadequate to describe God's continuous care for us you guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you receive me into glory. He even receives us into heaven. You know, at the point of death, when Christ was dying, there was no one. He was separated from God, because God had to punish that sin. But for us, he guides us with his counsel all through our lives. He never lets go and never leaves us, never stops holding our hand. And even when we're going to die... He's there receiving us into heaven. It's just such an incredible picture. Footsteps doesn't do it justice. So whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that I decide besides you. To be in heaven is to be in the presence of God. So heaven is supremely God-centered as well. <clears throat> the commentator says that there's going to be people we know in heaven... You know, those who've died in Christ, we'll see them again in heaven. And there's pleasures forevermore 
Psalm 16 says. We'll have rewards. And heaven is pictured with pearl gates and streets of gold. But the overwhelming reality is that heaven is to be in the presence of God, in the presence of our beloved Lord Jesus. And when Asaph goes into the sanctuary and worships God, he experiences the reality of his presence, but he sees this heavenly reality that that God, the Lord Jesus, is the main event in heaven. Jesus is what heaven is all about, his presence. And it makes you think, actually, that, you know, if, if people don't care about God, then why do they want to go to heaven? But 80% of Americans were asked if they believe in heaven, and they answered yes, and they want to go to heaven. But I don't know what they imagine is going to be there, because Jesus is at the center of heaven. Our Lord is there, and as Christians, we're going to be overwhelmed with just joy and happiness at being in his presence and relief and gratitude and worship. But if you're not a Christian, then why would you go there? Because heaven's about Jesus. And so it is on earth. There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. He is the source of all joy and happiness here on earth too. As he's the centre in heaven, he's the centre here. When I need strength, it's God that I turn to. He's my helper. There's no one else that can really help. And you know, when people help you in your life, it's because God's directed them and God's prompted them. Nothing that we have, you know, our health, our strength, the medicine that helps us, all of it comes from God. Even the good things that come from society and government, they're from God because all things come under his authority. God is the center of heaven and the center here. So these truths we need to embrace in faith. You know, faith is is not just belief. Faith is truth embraced and applied to life. So we're to internalize these verses. You know, whom have I in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth I desire besides you. We're to read these and internalize them and make them ours. Allow the Holy Spirit to make them real in our lives so that we know it deep in our souls. The Christian life depends on God sustaining us with these truths. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is, sorry, Christianity is so God-centered and God's presence with us so continuous. He holds our right hand and doesn't let go. So in conclusion, looking at this Psalm 73, confession is a vital part of the Christian life and God-centeredness is vital too. God's presence with us is present with us continuously and we thank God for it. Amen.